The following sermon by Nelson Atwood was recorded at Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church. For more information, please visit their website at www.noblebaptist.org.au That's www.noblebaptist.org.au Ephesians chapter 6 We've been looking at the armor of God for a few weeks now, I think six or eight weeks in total, and we are looking this morning at the last piece of the armor, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. I want to read just one verse from Ephesians 6 and then have you take your Bibles and we'll flip over to 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and we'll read a few verses there for as well for some context. So first of all, in Ephesians chapter 6, And we'll read verses 16 and 17 for the context of the sentence. And you know the story. Paul is commanding and commending to us all to take up the armor of God that we may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And in verse 16 he says, In all circumstances take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now flip over in your Bibles to Second Corinthians chapter 10, and we'll read verses 3 to 6. Verses 3 to 6, Paul again is writing and he says, For though we walk in the flesh... We are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Again, verse 5, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. We are, as a people of God, engaged in a spiritual warfare. We don't wrestle, we're not supposed to wrestle against flesh and blood, but we are in an ongoing wrestle and struggle against the spiritual forces of evil, the devil's devices and Satan's schemes. We are engaged in a spiritual warfare. We need to remember something about the devil. The Bible says in 1 Peter 5 that we are to be sober-minded, To be watchful, our adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. We are to resist him, firm in our faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by our brotherhood throughout the world. We're not alone in the struggle. Every single Christian who names the name of Christ is engaged in this same spiritual warfare, this spiritual struggle. The devil is a liar. He is a murderer and a deceiver, and he seeks constantly to devour and destroy. His goal is to turn believers, all of us, away from following Christ and to control the unbelievers in order to assault Christ's followers. We are engaged in spiritual warfare. We're commanded by Scripture to resist the devil. We're to destroy arguments and every lofty opinion. We're to take every thought captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ. I want you to notice back in Ephesians 6, the context and the other commands that he has given to us. In verse number 10, he says, Be strengthened in the Lord. It's a compassive command. It means that He must give us His strength. And so what we must do as the people of God is cry out to God and plead with Him for His strengthening in each of us. And that is a very, very important first step. For if we do not realize that we don't have the strength in and of ourselves, we are already wide open to the devil's attack. And so Paul begins by saying, be strengthened, be strong in the Lord. It's a passive command. We cry out to God to do it to us. Secondly, we're to put on the whole armor of God with the purpose that we might stand or endure against the schemes of the devil. We're to take up the whole armor of God and we're to stand against and resist the devil's schemes. And how are we going to do that? 
First of all, we're to fasten the truth around our waist. That's the truth of the gospel, the truth of the Bible. And the idea there is as we wrap it around our waist, we cling to it. It's fastened tightly to us so we don't let it go. Secondly, we are to fasten our feet to the assurance given by the gospel of peace. And as I was thinking about that a little later, the assurance that grips our feet, kind of like hobnail boots or footy cleats. So as you get that grip and you can push into the ground and you can push against those cleats, the assurance of the gospel of peace is like gripping our feet and hanging on to us. And when the devil comes against us with all of his schemes and devices, we are not easily pushed aside. We fasten to our feet the assurance given by the gospel of peace. We're to take up the shield of faith. We're to be convinced always that God is able to keep his promises. We are Also, to take up the helmet of salvation and to pull it down over our heads to protect our mind and our thinking. And lastly, this last piece, we are to take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Well, I want you to notice in verse 17, that last part of the verse, and the sword of the Spirit, the the command in the beginning part, and take or take up, controls both the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, so we can rightly say, and take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, if you were out on Wednesday night, we would talk very, very briefly about two kinds of verbs that are in the, uh, the New Testament that we have in Greek. It is the indicative kind of verb and the imperative kind of verb. And I know you're thinking, this is not English grammar. Why on earth would I want to know that on Sunday morning? Well, there's two things you need to know. Scripture has all kinds of facts and solid statements of truth. They mostly come in the form of the indicative verb, something that is. It also has commands given for us to obey. And in this little text here, we have one indicative verb, one statement about what is, and a command that we are to do in light of that statement. He says, take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So first of all, the truth is that the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. And what are we to do with it? We're to take it up. So what I want to do this morning is look at two main points for the message. If you want, you can follow along in your uh, little green message note sheet there in your, in your bulletin, or you can just simply listen. I want to look at two things. First of all, what is this sword of the Spirit? And secondly, how do we use the sword against the devil's devices? I want you to notice a number of things about the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. It is inspired, it's authoritative, it's profitable, it's sufficient. And we're going to look at two applications just briefly. It restores the soul and rejoices the heart. Don't worry, we'll go through those quickly. It won't take all morning, I promise. The sword of the Spirit, first of all, is the inspired Word of God. Take your Bibles, flip over to 2 Peter chapter 1. The end of your Bible, almost the very end, 2 Peter chapter 1, and we're going to read verses 19 and 21. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 19 and 21, the Bible says this, And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The idea of inspiration simply means it was breathed out by God. God inspired men. The Holy Spirit inspired and moved and worked through men who wrote in their own language. They wrote with their own vocabulary. They wrote in their own style of writing. God moved through men in the Old Testament and the New Testament as they wrote to address issues and problems that they saw among the people of God that they were living with. They wrote to record the stories and the histories of the people of God. They wrote to express godly worship. 
They wrote to lament the downfall of the godly, and they wrote to record the laws and the statutes of God for his people. Not only that, God moved these men to write Jesus' story in the gospel narratives. God moved Paul and John and Peter and James and the author of Hebrews to address issues in the church. God the Holy Spirit moved these men in such a way that their stories and records, their psalms and proverbs and prophecies have Christ as their common focus and goal. The other thing, this is amazing. All these authors over a thousand plus years of biblical history writing all this stuff down, they all wrote with complete consistency. There's no contradiction in theology and doctrine from one writer to the next. They all fit beautifully together. They all have Christ as their common goal and they have all been recognized since their earliest use as the words not only of human authors, but also their divine authors. These men knew they were writing Scripture. Notice, take your Bible, flip over to Second Timothy, back towards Ephesians and Second Timothy and chapter 3. Second Timothy 3, we're going to read a section from verse 15 down to verse 17. Actually, verse 14 to verse 17, just for the context. Paul is writing to his young friend and a pastor in Ephesus, and he says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The Word of God is not only inspired, and we see it here in the verse number 16, it is breathed out by God, expired by God. God the Holy Spirit moved men and they spoke, but the Word of God is not only inspired, it's also authoritative. This is not just a book of suggestions. It is authoritative. You say, why is that? The origin of the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit, is God Himself. Paul is commanding us to take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. It's authoritative as well. To read and obey the Word of God is to obey God Himself. To disobey the Word of God means that we are disobeying God Himself. We take the Word of God, we see what it says, and we choose not to obey it. Just as surely as when one of your parents says to you, do this, and we stand back and we say, I won't. We are disobedient when we read what the Word of God says and God calls us to do, and we refuse to do it. We are doing and exercising the same level of disobedience against God. To disobey means we're disobeying God Himself. The command of Scripture... For all of us is to repent and believe the gospel. That's an authoritative command. It's not a suggestion. I used to listen to people telling the gospel and they'd, they'd say something like this. You know, God has got this beautifully packaged gift. And here it is. And, and you know, you can take it or leave it. You know, it's just up to you. And, and they almost made like how you feel. And I read the Bible and it says God commands all men everywhere to repent. The failure to obey that command is to disobey God himself. The authority of the Bible is so great that disobedience to it will cost us an eternity in hell under, under God's furious wrath. You disobey what the Bible says, that's the end of it. The end result but on the other hand, the authority of the Bible is so great that when we hear the message of the gospel that calls us to repent of sin and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and we will be saved, the authority of the Bible is so great that it guarantees us if we obey those commands that we will know God's forgiveness, we will know salvation, we will know the filling of the Spirit, we'll know what it means to be set free and to walk with the living God. The word he breathed out by the Holy Spirit carries his full authority to command us. 
417 times in the ESV Bible, the Old Testament records these words, Thus says the Lord. And those men, when they stopped and they spoke those words, thus says the Lord, when they spoke those words, if they didn't get everything exactly right, there was a very simple solution. Take him to the highest point of a building or a cliff and just toss him off because he'll never say it again and he'll never get it wrong again. It was required 100% accuracy. The Bible says in Hebrews 1 and verse 1 that God spoke through the prophets to the fathers. But in these last days, he spoke to us in and through the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible is the sword of the Spirit, and it's God's words inspired by the Spirit. They're authoritative. They carry the full weight of God himself speaking. I want you to notice also, That this sword of the Spirit that Paul is calling us to take up is also profitable. Notice what it says in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16. He said it's breathed out by God and is profitable. The sword, which is the Word of God, is useful. It's beneficial. It is advantageous to promote our or enhance our well-being. But not merely our well-being, just from a human perspective. It is profitable for our well-being from God's perspective. The world has all kinds of methods and schemes to promote well-being. You know, you you drink this tea one day and you go out and you contemplate these uh, daisies another day and you go up and sit up on a mountain where the sun rises and all these things are supposed to be for your well-being. You go and look on the websites, go and look on Facebook for and type in wellness or well-being. There's hosts and hosts and hosts of books and methodologies for your well-being. But the reality of those things is they will deal with the surface issues only. It is only the Word of God that can deal with the real core issues of our sad situation, sin and separation from God. The Word of God is for profitable because it restores men's souls. Where? To a higher level of consciousness? Well, maybe, but far better, far infinitely better, it restores men's souls to a right relationship with the living God. The Word of God restores and heals the deep wounds that have caused, been caused by sin and separation from God. The Word of God addresses the deepest root problems that are hindering our well-being from living as God designed and created us to live. The Word of God is our sword of defense, which we wield against the enemy for all of our well-being. Just something to remember... Talking about the sword, you may have noticed that it's the only offensive weapon listed in all those weapons, right? The shield is a defensive weapon. The breastplate's a defensive weapon. The boots are kind of a defensive weapon. The, the, the helmet's a defensive weapon. And the sword is an offensive weapon. We use it to poke and jab. But the sword is also a defensive weapon. You watch, you know, if you're a guy, you love watching sword fights on, on the movies, right? And the guys get there and they swing those great big swords. I, I love the movie Braveheart, not because of all the story, which is kind of cool anyway. I love the movie Braveheart because he had this six-foot-long sword. And I thought, that's the coolest thing in the world, this great big sword. And one guy would swing a sword and lift the other one up and a big crash as they would come together. And it could be used as both a defensive and an offensive weapon. And when Paul calls us to take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, it's both an offensive and a defensive weapon. We defend ourselves against the enemy's attack and we also strike back with the sword of Spirit. So how does it bring about our well-being, our wellness, our spiritual, physical, soul health? The sword of the Spirit brings about our well-being by being the content of the Spirit's teaching, which is the truth. Notice what he says in 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Listen, the Word of God is not just a great thing to take and copy and paste onto a cute picture and post it on Facebook, which we all love to do. I do that. I do it. I love that. But that's not what it's for. The Word of God is not just to be taken and posted up on the walls of our home to look at it and go, oh, what a lovely thought. No, the Word of God has power because it is to be taught. It is the content of the Spirit's teaching to bring us into a right understanding of truth. 
It is the content of the Spirit's reproof. We don't like to offend people in our day and age. You know, everybody has the right to their own opinion and all that sort of stuff. And it's interesting because the Bible doesn't comprehend that at all. It doesn't, doesn't regard that at all. The Bible says, I'm right, everybody else is wrong. And this is the only way it is. And as Christians, men and women of God who carry the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, the Word of truth, we stand up for what is right. And the Word of God is to be used in reproof to correct error. It is a sad day when the church stops reproving with the Word of God because that's what it's there for. It is the content of our reproof with which we criticize and confront error. The sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, is the content of the Spirit's correction of wrong thinking and wrongdoing. It isn't just to tell off. It also is to guide and bring the person back into a right understanding of the truth. It's a tool we use for training. It's a tool which the Spirit of God, better said, uses for training. And the Spirit of God, as we study and soak up the Word of God, cultivates in us a godly mind, godly morals, and godly behavior. What is the purpose? What's the outcome of the teaching and reproving and correcting and training work of the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God? The Bible says in 2 Timothy 3.17, The outcome is that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That means we're fully equipped with every necessary component for the task and purpose at hand. It means to be complete, to be qualified, to be proficient. We have everything we need. The Word of God enables and equips us for most good works, right? Well, you know, there are some things that we need to go outside the Word of God to get help with, right? No. He says it's profitable for every good work. That you may be partial, somewhat equipped for most good works. And we smile and shake our head and go, no, no, Nelson, we can all read black and white English too, just like you can. And no, we can see the verse right in front of us. We're looking at it just like you are. And we can see right there it says, you may be complete, equipped for every good work. But you know what the reality is? Most of us live as if that verse says that you may be partial, somewhat equipped for some good works. That's not what Paul said. Paul said that we have the word of God, that it is for the preaching and teaching of truth for reproving, for correcting, for training, so that the man, or that means woman, child, all of God may be complete, complete, and equipped for every good work. How does the Spirit of God do that? We also know, I want to back up, we know that because the Word of God is sufficient. Paul prays. Paul says that we are to take up that sword of the Spirit. It's inspired and it's profitable and it's authoritative and it equips us for every single good work. The Bible says in Psalm 119 and verse 1, Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. You notice what the psalmist does there? He says, Blessed are those whose lifestyle, whose way is blameless. No charge can be brought against them by God, who are walking and living according to what the Spirit says, the Scriptures say. They are blessed. Walking blameless is equated with walking and living according to Scripture. We do not need anything else except what is taught in Scripture to live perfectly before our God. Think about it. He designed us. He created us. He knows you and I to a level that is infinitely greater than we will ever know and understand ourselves. He has given us everything we need within these pages. What is it that makes the Scripture inspired and authoritative and profitable and sufficient? It is because, as Paul says in Ephesians 6 and verse 17, it is the sword of the Spirit. The Spirit inspired it. The Spirit imparts those qualities to it. This is no mere old book of collected songs and stories and proverbs and laws and myths and legends. This is the sword of the Spirit. It is the Word of God that is spoken. I can't help myself. You know the word word there? Who can tell me what the most common Greek word is for word in the New Testament? 
Logos. Who said it? Good on you, Andrew. Logos. Do you know what this word here is? Rima. You say, oh, okay, that's funny. Why did you use the word rima? Well, the word logos mostly has the idea of a written or recorded word. Not entirely, but mostly. The word rima is a different kind of word. It literally means the spoken word. So it's a word that has actually been put into lips, put across the lips, and spoken out. So this sword of the Spirit, which is the spoken word of God, it's inspired because the Spirit spoke it. It's authoritative because the Spirit spoke it. It is the sword of the Spirit. It's His words that we have. That's what gives it such great power. What a sad day, brothers and sisters, when this book lies closed on our shelves and we go down to Kurong, I've said it before, I'll say it again, and we spend countless thousands of dollars on all kinds of books that have been written to resolve and deal with the issues and problems that we face in the Christian life. And this book remains uncracked, unopened, and unconsidered. This book has given us everything we need to live this Christian life. Well, what does it look like when it's actually in action? How does the sword of the Spirit both defend and attack against the devil's devices? Remember at the beginning of the message we said, the devil prowls around looking for someone to devour. First Peter 5, 8, 9. I read it again. It says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith. His devouring, accusing, lying action, when it takes root, can leave us in despair and depression and discouragement. So how do we defend and attack back against the attacks of the devil? We resist him armed with the sword of the Spirit. So that's the second main point here. How do we use the sword of the Spirit? Take your Bibles and look at Psalm 19. Psalm 19, verses 7 to 11. All the way back to Psalm 19. It's a well-known passage, a well-known psalm, speaking about the, the effectiveness and the power of the Word of God. And the psalmist writes in Psalm 19, beginning at verse 7, he says, The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. I don't want to look at the whole thing. We don't have time for that. I want to look at just two lines out of this psalm. And I want you to see what happens. Notice what he says in seven and the first part of verse seven. He says, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The devil prowls around. He watches and sees the circumstances and the tests and trials that we go through. And he comes alongside and he sees the struggle we're in. And he begins to whisper the lies in our ear to try and turn us away, to blind us from seeing what God is doing, to seeing the beauty and the glory of God taking us through those circumstances. And he seeks to depress and downcast and wear down the soul. How do we defy it? How do we defend ourselves against that? Well, the psalmist says the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. What we do is we take the sword of the Spirit and we resist and we fight back in exactly the same way that Jesus did. We say, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but by every rhema, same word, curiously enough, every word that proceeds in the mouth of God, it's the very same word. We use the word of God, the inspired, authoritative, profitable, sufficient word to restore the soul. How do we do it? You know what the psalmist does? He talks to himself. 
used to think you're not supposed to do that, right? Like it's a bad idea. Don't talk to yourself. People, you see people talking to themselves. I had a friend. We used to work together, and he was a carpenter, and I was a carpenter, and and you'd see us walking past each other in the job, and we'd both be going. We'd be we'd be sort of reminding ourselves of measurements and cuts and so on as we're working as carpenters, and every once in a while we'd pass each other in the hallway, and he'd go, "What? I wasn't talking to you, man. I was talking to myself." Oh, okay, and we keep going, and it was just this thing we did. And you know, the psalmist does exactly the same thing. You know what he says? Bless the Lord, O my soul. Who's he talking to? His own soul. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Hope in God. He tells his own soul. He reminds his own soul from the authority of the word of God. The reasons why he is to look up in hope. Brothers and sisters, when the devil comes along and begins to whisper those nagging, doubtful, depressing, discouraging thoughts in your hearts, listen, we respond, we pick up the sword of the Spirit, and we shout back, if you like, this is the Word of God. It is written, God who began a good work in me will complete it against that day. What does this require? It requires memorizing and knowing the Word of God. We'll look at that in a little bit, in a few moments. We use the Word of God, the inspired, authoritative, profitable, sufficient Word of God to restore our own souls and also to come alongside each other and restore each other and share a word. I love it when I open my text message and somebody sitting in that front row over there has sent me a text message that says, just a verse to encourage your day. And I go, wow, that is so great. I needed to hear that. I got this little thing on my phone. Mobile phones can be used for a lot of good things as well as some bad, okay? I got this little app called Uversion Bible app. And it shoots me a verse of the day. A little memory verse, a little verse from Scripture to encourage me for my day. And I'm amazed at how many times I hear that little thing go off on my phone and I open it up and I flip it open and the verse of the day and it matches exactly what I'm going through by accident, right? Wrong. We're to take the Word of God and restore our souls with it. We fight back. The Bible was written for anything. It's written to reveal the work of God to restore the soul of man, to set him on a right path, to bring him into a right relationship with God. Notice also verse 8, the first line there. He says, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Again, the devil seeks to use the circumstances and tests and trials that we go through, and he whispers the lies to us about God. You know, God really doesn't care about you. Because if God really cared about you, He wouldn't put you in this situation. You know, those friends at church, they're really not your friends because, you know, if they really cared, they wouldn't let you go through this on your own. You know, that, that pastor boy of his, you know, if he really cared about you, and the whispers go on and on and on. And don't, don't get it wrong. I've said it before, I'll say it again. The devil doesn't walk up with a big warning sign. Warning, you're about to be tempted. No, he walks up and whispers in the softest, gentlest voice and begins to suggest all the lies that will discourage and downcast the heart. And the heart needs to be rejoiced. How do we do that? The only true cure for a saddened, depressed heart is to be awakened to the great truths of Scripture. What causes joy? What rejoices the heart? You remember Christmas in about three weeks? Oh, whatever, month and three weeks. What did the angel say? Behold, I bring you good news of great joy, right? What's going to rejoice the heart more than anything else? It's good news. Yesterday morning, I got a text message from Heather telling me where she was and she was flying home. And I thought, we got the times all mixed up. And I thought, there's no way she'll make a connecting flight. She won't be home till Sunday. And I was depressed. And then I got more good news that says, no, 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 the timing's wrong. I'll be there at 1.30 in the afternoon. And, and I was so rejoicing. Let me tell you, it's excited. It's good news that rejoices the heart, right? So when our hearts are discouraged and downcast, the easiest thing the devil will do is, don't look at your Bible. Don't go over there. Don't pray. Just stay and wallow in your own depression and sadness. 
And the word of God says that the law, the testimony of the Lord, the law of the Lord, the word of God is sure. It's reliable. It's concrete. He won't let you down. It makes the wise as simple. In verse 8, the priests of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. So what do we do? We go back to the word of God and we look at the good news of the gospel, the good news that God tells us about ourselves and about him, and we cheer our own heart up. We speak to ourselves and we apply the word of God to our own heart to build us up and strengthen us and give us that joy in the Lord. There was good news of great joy, and it isn't just that a Savior has been born. The good news of great joy is a Savior has been born. He's lived and he's died and he has raised again. That's good news of great joy, brothers and sisters. If your heart needs rejoicing, that's how we do it. I want us to see one more thing. Take your Bibles, flip over to the book of Luke, Luke chapter 4. I want you to see how Jesus used the Bible, the Word of God, in defending himself against the devil's attack. Luke chapter 4, we're going to read the, the 13 verses there. Luke 14, I'm going to read the first 13 verses. The Word of God says, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. For forty days, being tempted by the devil, and he ate ate nothing during these days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. He took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from there, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him and said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. One quick note, verse 13, when the devil had ended every temptation, I think that means that this temptation you read in verse 12 wasn't the last one. It went on for some time beyond that. And when he had finished all those temptations, he left him for another opportune time. Notice, first of all, That Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit. He was in the wilderness, led there to be tempted by the devil. He fasted and prayed for 40 days. He's hungry. The devil comes to him. The devil seizes on his hunger and tempts him to use his divine omnipotent power for his own selfish ends to satisfy that hunger. And he does it bringing into question Jesus' identity and person, and Jesus responds purely with the word of God. It is written, and he thrusts the sword of the Spirit, the word of God, back at Satan, both defending and attacking Satan. The devil comes again, more temptations. He questions Jesus' identity and authority as Son of God again. He offers dominion and rulership to Jesus without the suffering of the cross. He dares Jesus to prove his deity without the suffering of the cross. And in every temptation, Jesus wields his sword of the Spirit. It is written. Here's an example and a lesson for us. Jesus, truly God, And truly man, he knew the scriptures. Being truly man, and something we often forget in this story here, he was truly man. He learned the scriptures as we do. Being truly man, I am convinced he memorized and meditated on them. Being truly God, we know he was able to apply them perfectly and accurately to each and every situation that came across. As the teachers of the law, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees and the Sadducees later on come against him to challenge him and test him. He responds over and over again in the same way. He quotes the scriptures to them. 
He quoted and used the word of God, which is the sword of the spirit, in his defense and as an offensive weapon against his critics and accusers. But there's an equally important lesson here for how we to use a sword. And we caught it in verse 1. It says, Jesus being full of the Holy Spirit. The sword that Paul is calling and commanding us to take up and wield in our defense and our offense against the devil is the sword of the Spirit. Jesus set the example for us to follow when he both knew those scriptures and he used them as his own sword against the devil, but he did it in the power of the Holy Spirit. This book, this word, is the sword of the Spirit. Without the infilling power of the Holy Spirit, we cannot use it in our defense against the devil's devices. I can hear some of you going, oh wait, I'm not sure about that. Well, let me give you this example. Consider the Pharisees. How many people here memorize the Bible on a regular basis? <laughs> All these little hands go like this. I don't want to put my hand up too high in case anybody sees me, but I know, I know a bunch of you do, right? How many of you memorized the Genesis 1 to 51? Two. Nobody? How about Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy? How about Genesis to Malachi? Anybody do that so far? Anybody working on it out of curiosity? No. Pharisees, by and large, had memorized those five books. Some of them had gone on to memorize the whole Old Testament. And they did not know Jesus. Why? Because they didn't have the Holy Spirit inside them, infilling them, dwelling inside them to teach them what the Scriptures were all about. Jesus even rebukes them. You know the Scriptures, but you don't know me. It requires the filling of the Holy Spirit. They rejected the Messiah because it did not have the Spirit of God. They knew all the words of Scripture. And listen, you can know every single word of Scripture written from cover to cover of your Bible, but without the filling of the Holy Spirit that equips and enables you to use it in His power, all you have is a bunch of words in your memory. It requires the power of the Holy Spirit. It is both the Spirit of God indwelling and the sword of the Spirit in our hands and our heart. Be very careful with this. Do not put aside one for the other. Okay? The danger is some of our more charismatic Pentecostal brothers, God bless them, we love them in the Lord, but some of them have put aside the Word of God and relied entirely upon the infilling of the Spirit. That's dangerous and it's wrong. Jesus knew the Bible backwards and forwards. You say it's easy for him. He was God. He was also truly man and he had to learn it by memory just like you do. He knew it. He was also filled with the Word of God, uh, with the Spirit of God, sorry. The other extreme danger is this, and some of the conservative, our conservative brothers and sisters have gone this way, which they have known and grasped and learned the Word of God, but have all but dismissed the use and power of the Holy Spirit in their lives, and they have become so filled with the Word of God, but without the Spirit of God to enable and equip them, the two must go together. It is no mistake, it's no accident whatsoever that the provision of God for us is both the Spirit of God to fill us and indwell us and the Word of God which we hold up in our hands and we use. Brothers and sisters, it's both. You cannot have one without the other. You must have them together. We've talked all this time about the Spirit of God, the sword of the Spirit. I want to go back now to the verse again. Ephesians chapter 6. Take your Bibles back there and read these words. Take up Verse 17, the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. The verb take applies to both. So we'll look at it this way. And take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Paul says, take it up. It means to grasp it, to receive it. It means to take it and gird it on your side with a sheath and you keep it absolutely close to you. 
Those men could pull that sword out extremely fast because it was close by their sides. We take up the sword and we make it our own. We take up that sword and become familiar with it. We read it devotionally. We read it exhaustively. And we read it extensively. Why are we reading through Isaiah and our morning Bible readings in church? It's not the easiest book to read through, but it is the Word of God. And we need to know it all. Not just bits of it. Not just devotional bits. Why do I preach through books of the Bible all the way through, taking a long time to go through six chapters? Because it's so critical that we get it all. And no, I'll never preach through the whole Bible like this. I understand that. But it's so critical that we get as much as we can from these words to understand it. To read it all, the tough bits as well as the easy bits. We read it devotionally, exhaustively, and extensively. Like a physical sword, we learn the weight and the heft and the length and the sharpness. You ever watch guys in those movies when they're practicing with a sword? You know, they're swinging it around and they move back and forth and up over their head and down. And they go back and forth and they spar back and forth. They spend hours getting used to the weight and the length. And they know exactly where that sword's going to be. And as they bring it around, they know it's like an extension of their arm. And as it swings around, they can do exactly what they want with it because they've learned it and they have taken it and made it their own. It's exactly the same with this sword of the Spirit. Memorize the scriptures, meditate on them, apply them. Take that sword of the Spirit and learn it and know it. All the while you're doing that, brother and sister in Christ, on your knees, plead with God the Holy Spirit to teach you, to train you, to instruct you, to build you up in your faith as you read that word, to give you the Spirit, to empower you to use it in the right moment, the right way. We close. I want to just share a story. I was I don't know how I came across. I was thinking about it yesterday driving out to the airport. Uh, Eleazar. You guys remember the story of Eleazar, the son of Dodo? He's the old man in the Old Testament. He was one of David's mighty men. This is what the Bible says about him. In 2 Samuel 23, 9 and 10, the Bible says, And next to him among the three mighty men was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, the son of Ahohi, He was with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle, and the men of Israel withdrew. He rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clung to the sword. The Lord brought about a great victory that day, and the men returned after him only to strip the slain. Brothers and sisters, listen. Oh, that God would make this church a host an army of Eleazar's. Oh, that we would stand with Christ our King. Eleazar stood beside his King. When everybody else fled away, when everybody was just running for the hills because the Philistines were coming, he stood with David. He identified himself with David. I'm one of David's men. Brothers and sisters, what this world needs to see is Christian men and women standing up and saying, I belong to Jesus Christ. He's my Savior, and I am His servant, His child. Oh, that we would stand with Christ our King when everybody else flees away. Notice that Eliezer rose and struck down the Philistines. Oh, that God would work through us the people of God, to take the sword of the Spirit and wield it against the enemy, the spiritual forces of darkness, to tear down their fortresses and every lofty thought raised against the knowledge of God. He got into the battle. He pulled his sword out, lifted up his shield and marched into battle, swinging that sword. He didn't do it for a little while. The Bible says his hand clung to the sword. You ever get those things when you, when you hang on to something? I was riding with a friend, a motorbike, um, a couple months ago, and a freezing rain fell. And we were riding along on the highway, and I'm riding along, and uh, it was so cold and so wet, and I'm, it's not the best time to have the tires riding, but whatever. I got home, and I got to get off my motorbike, and my hand was so stiff, and so cold and stuck on the handlebar, I literally had to reach over and pull my fingers off the handlebar because they were just absolutely frozen on there. 
us Eleazar. His hand clung to the sword. Brothers and sisters, what difference would it make in our lives if this had to be pried out of our fingers? His hand clung to it. He would not let it go. When his strength was found, the Bible says that he was weary. Weary. His arm was not just, not just here, but the whole arm was tired. And he would not let go. He would not give up the fight. He stood beside his king and kept on going. And the Bible says the Lord brought about a great victory that day. And men returned only to slip the slain. All the work was done. Oh, that God would raise up from this church men and women who would cling to the sword of the Spirit with their hands, even though they're weary, not letting go, filled with the Spirit of God and willing to go out and say, I stand for Jesus Christ and preach the gospel wherever we go, in word and in deed. His hand clung to the sword. Come on, Noble Park Baptist. We're in a battle. We're fighting against an enemy who does not fight fair. You and I cannot do it on our own. So Paul begins by saying, be strengthened in the Lord and the power of his might and put on the armor. Some of you know that Heather was away at a funeral and um, I, I knew she was coming home yesterday. So we went into high gear action. We, uh, we got the vacuum out, and we got the dishwashing detergent out, and we got the laundry soap out, and we got the broom out. And, man, I worked, I cleaned, I scrubbed, I laundered, I ironed, I did things I didn't know how to do. And I got that house as clean as I could get it because my loved one was coming home. I washed the car. I even took a shower and shaved. I put on clean clothes and went out to meet her. Hey, listen. The lover of our souls is coming home, coming back for us soon. You imagine the King of kings and Lord of hosts, the head of the whole army of God calls all the hosts of the army of God to stand ready for inspection. And we come running out of the barracks and we got missing one shoe and somebody forgot his, his shield and one of the guy's helmet's over there and, and three haven't got any swords and don't know where they are and they're so dull they can't even be used anyway. And the king comes to inspect the troops. And we're not ready. We've forgotten about the shield of faith. We've forgotten about the sword of the spirit. We've tossed off the helmet of salvation because it's uncomfortable. And now we're standing in a line waiting for the king to inspect the troops. The lover of our souls is coming for us. Paul says, put on the armor of God so that you will stand, you'll endure all the way to the end. How tragic when the lover of our souls comes to meet us and we're found not putting it on, not using it, not equipped, not doing the good work, not knowing the truth that we have been called to learn and know. Oh, that God would raise up mighty men and women from this church, armed and equipped for battle, shield in place, sword strapped on the side, helmet on our heads, breastplate tightly fastened, belt of truth wrapped around our waist, crying out on our knees for strength from God and standing when the enemy comes against us. I don't know if you noticed, but the sword's not a long-distance weapon. It's a close weapon. You don't take the sword and throw it a long way away like a spear. You hang on to it close, and you hold it. And when the enemy comes close, you fight back. May God help us, the people of God, to be like Eleazar, to put on the whole armor of God and stand firm when the devil comes against us. Would you stand with me? We're going to pray, and then we'll sing the benediction together. Loving Heavenly Father, we come before you, and, O oh God, we give thanks. 
We give you thanks, O God, that you have sent the Lord Jesus Christ to be our Savior, to suffer and die on a cross. Father, you've washed us clean. You, by your omnipotent power, have taken sinners and made them into saints. And you've taken slaves and made them into soldiers of the King. And Father, we give you thanks that you first began to say, put on the whole armor. But before that, you said, be strengthened in the Lord and the power of his might. Father, we cry out to you that you would strengthen every single one of us in our inner man. Father, we cry out to you that you would do a great work by the power of your Holy Spirit, that we would be enabled to stand firm. Father, help us each to put on the assurance, the absolute assurance that we are truly saved, never to be lost, and fasten it tightly to our feet, that we will stand firm. Father, we pray that you would help us to wrap that belt of truth tightly around our waists. Fasten it to us. Father, we might know the truth of the word of God. Father, we cry out to you also that you would take the breastplate of righteousness, not our own righteousness, but Christ's righteousness, and help us, O God, to fasten it tightly around our chest and our back, that we might be defended against your wrath and also against the enemy's attacks. Father, we pray also that you would help us, each and every one of us, to take that helmet pull it down over our head, protecting our thoughts, our thinking, and our mind. Father, we pray that you would help us each to take up that shield of faith, to link arms with our neighbor, to work side by side together as a church, as a body, as a unit, defending ourselves and defending each other. Father, help us to strap on that sword. And Father, filled with the Holy Spirit to draw that sword from the sheath and use it as Jesus used it. He did not go against the devil with lofty arguments and great philosophy or psychology. He simply said, it is written. Father, may we be this morning and the rest of our time until you come back, may we be an army of Eleazar's standing side by side with our king and with each other, with our hands clung tightly to the word of God. Father, make them pry it out of our hands. Father, would we would be a people of the book, but a people filled with the spirit of God enabled to use the word of God to defend an attack. Lord God, we plead with you for this church. Father, we thank you for the salvation that we have in Christ. And Father, we plead with you that you would work in all of our hearts. Father, I ask again that you would revive us according to your word. Father, we long for real biblical revival a pouring out of the Holy Spirit, a confession and repentance of sin. Father, relationships being restored, not torn apart. Father, the gospel being lived out and preached out as well. Father, we long to see this community. You have planted us here in Noble Park in this place in Harold Road. Father, we long to see this community around us reach with the gospel of Jesus Christ, that sinners would we come in, hear the gospel, and by the power of God be changed into saints and sons and daughters of a living God. Father, we cry out to you for our young people especially, those some, Lord, who are struggling wrestling, discouraged, and downcast. Father, we pray that they would be led by the Spirit of God to open the Word of God, to see their souls restored by the power of the Word of God and the Spirit of God. Father, we pray that you would protect them from the attacks of the enemy and the world system that would draw them away from the church and draw them away from the fellowship of godly men and women and off into the lost, hopeless, pointless pursuits of the world. Father, we cry out to you too for those who are grieving. 
Lord, for Margaret and Paul, for Heather and her family. Father, for Lorraine and her family. And there are others too, Lord, for Carl and Shirley. Father, grieving the loss of loved ones. Father, we pray that they would see and turn to the Scriptures and see the great hope there in the Scriptures. That they would, you would rejoice their hearts as they would look therein. Father, we plead with you for a work of God in this church. Working all of us, Father, from the pastor to the back doors. Oh God, have your way in us. This day, take the word of God and by the power of the Spirit of God, change us a little more into the likeness and the image of Christ. Father, we plead with you in these things. Lord, we seek your help and we ask for it in the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.